Exodus Health Center podcast. These seminars are recorded live at the Exodus Health Center in Kennesaw, Georgia, where we believe that God needs no help, just no interference. Tonight's workshop is part one of three in the Healing Cancer series, presented by Dr. David Jockers. Now, here's Dr. David. Alright. Alright, guys, so for who was that video a little close close for? Who who here has ever known somebody that's had cancer? Yep. Looks like almost everybody's hands up, right? I mean, who's had their life affected, whether it was you or a family member or somebody close to you? Quite a few guys. I've lost three grandparents to cancer, two before I was alive. I watched my grandfather suffer with chemotherapy literally the last six months of his life, last two months. Some of you guys have heard this story before. Last two months, I mean, guy had lost over 100 pounds, the worst pain he could possibly imagine, coughing, spitting up blood. I would go and visit him in the hospital and literally sit there and watch him going through that. So as I started to learn about health and about healing, this is a topic that was really close and dear to my heart because I've seen it happen in my family. Right now, we're going to go through some of these statistics. Right now, this is what they're saying. They're saying that one out of, first off, 41%, you have a 41% chance, if you're living in the United States of America, of getting cancer during the course of your life. 41% chance. When I say that, so when I say, first off, when I say cancer, is anybody here get a little bit scared, a little bit nervous? Right? Some people don't. Some people do. Right? Because it's a power word in our society, isn't it? Right? If you get diagnosed with cancer, or if you hear about somebody who gets diagnosed with cancer, what do you do? First thing you do is that they say, oh, my mom just got diagnosed with cancer. What do you tell them? Sorry. Sorry, exactly. That's what we do. I'm so sorry, right? Because it's a big shock for the family. It is. And right now they're saying 41% chance. So that's four out of 10, right? Two out of five. So if we took, so we have five people in the front row, right? What that's saying is that two of you guys are going to get cancer. We've got to apply this to our lives because ultimately most people are walking through their life on autopilot, right? Just kind of going about what they're doing, and guess what they're thinking? They hear about other people getting cancer, guess what they're thinking in their mind? It's not going to be me, right? Yep, it happened to him. I turn, I flip open the newspaper, happened to uh, George Carl, Denver Nuggets uh, coach, right? It happened to this person's son, this person. It's not going to be me. That's what everybody always thinks, okay? But ultimately, the statistics that I'm going to go over, they're saying one thing. They're saying it's going to be you, right? It's going to be your family members, your loved ones. That's what they're saying. But that's why you guys are here. You know, thank God you're here. And I want you guys to give, give yourself a round of applause for being here. Right. Because... I was telling so many people about this workshop, and this is what most people think in their mind, but I don't have cancer. I don't know anybody that has cancer, right? So that's what they're thinking, right? Is that a, is that a mature mindset to take when it comes to cancer? No. no. We don't want to wait till we have it, right? Absolutely not. And so that video showed a couple things, and we're going to talk about some of these things. Who, who read my newsletter this past week? Okay? And we talked about how, how different statistics are skewed. Right? And it makes it show, makes it look like different things are happening when it comes to the war against cancer. Right? By the way, how much money do you think we've spent researching cancer over the years? Yeah, over $2 trillion. Yeah, it's like $1.8, almost $2 trillion. And has cancer gotten better or worse? It's gotten worse, right? What they've done is they've actually changed what, what it means to be a cancer survivor. Right? It used to mean that you didn't die from cancer. Right? What they've changed it to is if you make it five years. So let's say you're diagnosed with cancer, okay? You make it five years, and then five years in one day, the whole time you're suffering, five years in one day, you die, right? But you're a cancer survivor. You guys see that? That's, that's the statistics. That's what, they, that's what they actually say. 
And so because it's been changed around, they can make the statistics look differently. Like when he was showing in there, by the way, that, that video that you guys saw, it's a pretty amazing video, and it comes out of a movie called Healing Cancer from the Inside Out. And you can actually get this movie. You can watch a lot, a lot of sequences of it on YouTube. Um, it's got all these top experts talking about this. But what they're actually saying is that when they looked at it, so the tamoxifen, it actually, uh, when they took the, the number of people, I think it was like 500 people, okay? can't remember exactly how many people uh, survived, but in the tamoxifen number, it was one and a half People basically, it was like three more than uh, than the the group that had the placebo, right? That actually survived during the time span that they had for the study, and so they said, well, forty nine percent greater chance, right? Actually, you have forty nine percent greater chance of living longer, but really, all it was when you looked at it, when when you changed the statistics around, it was a one and a half percent. And we'll talk a little bit about how that works, but this is how research can be skewed to show us what we're looking for. So we'll get into this a little bit here. Oh. There we go. Go turn it on. So it all comes down to number one is how our culture looks at, at cancer, right? And how it looks at disease in general, right? And so in our culture, we look at disease. When somebody gets disease, we think of them as a victim, right? And this is what we think of, okay? And so when somebody gets disease, it's one of the reasons why we say we're sorry, right? Somebody develops cancer, we're like, I'm, I'm sorry, right? Because we look at it, we give kind of a victim role. And what we think is that our health is determined by our genetics, number one, and by the type and amount of viruses, bacteria, things like that, that we're around, right? So if we get a cold, what, what do we instantly think? Sick. Right? We think we're sick, but we also think, where did I get it, right? How, who, was I, who was I near, right? Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. We're always thinking about how it came about, okay? Not that that's a bad thought. But the concept comes down to this. We're constantly thinking about the amount and type of bacteria and viruses that we're around. And then health promotion in our culture is based on vaccines, medical tests, drugs, and surgery, right? And so the, the concept is, right, the, the more drugs we have in our body, the closer we are to health, right? The less organs, the closer we are to health, in a sense. That's what we're, we're looked at. We're lo we look at the body as kind of a defective organism, right, that it's meant to get sick and diseased, and that, thank God, we've got you know, great medical science, we can come in, we can take out organs, give drugs, things like that. And there is, I mean, it's, it is amazing. Our medical science is incredible. But nevertheless, that is the approach, and that's the approach that really hasn't been getting us the results that we desire. Okay, and the great medical solution, of course, more drugs, vaccines, less organs, equals less sickness and death. So let's look at the devastation of cancer. Okay, so every 30 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer in the United States. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Every 30 seconds, one out of eight women will develop breast cancer, one of the fastest growing forms of cancer. 700,000 people per year in the United States uh, develop cancer, and that cancer rate in children has exploded. Who knows a child that, that has cancer? Right? Some of you guys do, yeah. I mean, it's growing more and more and more in our society. I mean, it's been, it's been going through the roof. So one out, of, one out of 300 children now diagnosed with cancer before the age of 20. That's an appalling statistic to even think about that. Right? And what they're saying now is that, that the youth of today will not outlive their parents. Right? Kids that are under 15 today, right, this new generation, will not even outlive their parents. Basically, that their, their life expectancy is going to be less. And one of the reasons is just the increase in these drugs. And what they're saying now is, is that there's going to be a night, that with the population today, 
Okay, the, the, the youth of today, there's a 90% chance that they're going to, right now it's 41%, they're saying it's going to be a 90% chance that they're going to get cancer during the course of their lives. This disease is growing like wildfire. I mean, it's growing all over the place. And so, over the next couple weeks, who here wants to know exactly what they need to do to prevent ever getting cancer for you and your family? All of us, right? That's why you guys are here. So, over the next couple weeks, it's going to be a three-week series. There's a lot to go through, but I'm going to systemically kind of break down what we're doing right now and what we need to do to prevent it so that we never get it and ultimately to reverse it if, if you do know somebody that's had it. Okay, and so medical system, this is what we're looking at right here. So Business Week, this is an article, May 29, 2006. What they said is that our medical system itself costs $2 trillion each year. And who's, who's been watching the news, right, about um, the whole healthcare reform and everything? Some of you guys probably heard about some of that stuff, right? So this is one of the arguments, right? It costs $2 trillion every year. Right? And these are some of the medical doctors. This is actually a quote right out of this article from a medical doctor. He said, everything we do is based on rules and traditions, not scientific evidence. Right? So a lot of the advice, now they, what they said is that about 10%, 10 to 13% of what they do is actually scientifically based. Everything else is a rule and a tradition. And they say vested interests play a huge role. We're going to look at how this works. So this is Dr. Jagzi right here. Okay? And what she did was this big study. All right, and it was, it was called the cancer study. And they took all of these studies that were done um, between, I think it was like 1990 and uh, 2006 or something like that. It was 1,534 cancer studies. And what they found was that 29% of them had direct conflicts of interest, right? Meaning that whoever was doing the study was also being paid by either a pharmaceutical manufacturer or medical device manufacturer or whatever it was. This is her quote. She says, given the frequency we observed for conflicts of interest um, and the fact that conflicts were associated with study outcomes, I would suggest that merely disclosing conflicts is probably not enough. It's becoming increasingly clear that we need to look more at how we can, we can disentangle cancer research from industry ties. Right, so we've always, you know, everywhere you go, right? Who's ever seen people running in pink, right? Um, you know, breast cancer research, all this kind of stuff. Right, here's what we always have to ask. So, for years, I always thought, well, this is great, right? We're going to give money to cancer research. We're going to do things like that, okay? But we have to ask ourselves where this money is going, okay? Who knows where it goes? Cancer research money. It really does. Ultimately, it goes to drug companies because it goes into research for a cure, right? So we're running for a cure. Now the 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 quote cure, okay? So so anything that's that that is considered a cure has to be a pharmaceutical made product, a synthetic product. They've actually patented that word. And so it, it goes right to them. They don't put any of that money into prevention. So it goes all right into drug companies so that they can continually look for drugs, um, different medical devices, different things like that. So all the money that we're raising all these altruistic behaviors, all of it's going in that direction. Okay? Do you think that's the best place to put put that money? No. Yeah, who thinks that would be the best place? Right? Most people would all agree that we need to put it into prevention, right? Absolutely. We need to look at lifestyle, we need to look at different factors that are involved in it. That's not what we're doing. And so take a look at this right here. I like this cartoon. Right? So it says FDA drug drug decision panels. This is kind of like how they're making their decisions right here. Right? Of course, this is a, a cartoon. But ultimately, right, they've all got their fingers crossed. Now, when we look at the FDA, it's, it's, it's basically a revolving door with people that are involved in industry and people that have, have something to profit from. And what they said was that the scary thing about um, the study that, that was done, the last study I was talking about, was that the most disturbing part 
is that the randomized trials that were supposedly assessed patient survival were found to be more likely to report a survival advantage associated with a medical intervention such as a drug um, or a new technology when conflict of interest was present, right? And so that's kind of obvious, right? So when there was a conflict of interest, it was more likely to, to show the, the outcome to be in favor of whatever that, that intervention was. And so that's what that, that's saying right there. So let's look at some of the things that we do in our society. Right? And this is important right here because the prestigious journals, this is the kind of study that they look for. They, they really like, obviously, um, they, they, they really like the double-blind studies, and they really like anything that involves prescription drugs and showing a benefit. Why do you think they would want that? Why do you think they'd want to publish articles that show favor favoritism towards a medical intervention or a drug? Sell more drugs. Sell more drugs, but ultimately, so let's think the journal necessarily doesn't have a direct influence. So let's say like the New England Journal of Medicine doesn't have a direct influence. So the guys that are on that board, they they typically are not involved with the drug companies, okay? But they have an indirect involvement, right? Because who pays for the ads in the article, right? In the in the uh, yeah exactly in the journal, the pharmaceutical industries, right? And what keeps that journal alive? The advertisement, right? Absolutely. And so, if they're slamming different drugs, do you think that um, that that pharmaceutical company is going to start supporting them with advertisements? Of course not, right? So there's an indirect effect that goes into this. And really, the biggest message. And I'm a scientist. I've had, I've, I've gotten, I'm published in a journal, um, and I've been involved with science for a while. I'm working on some research right now that we're hoping to get get published. And the biggest thing with it as a scientist is that obviously you want your science to be valid and, and to be clean, but ultimately, I mean, what, what I know and what most scientists know is that it never really is, right? That there's no such thing as 100% pure science. There's always, there's always, everything's being influenced by the observer, everything's being influenced by whoever's doing it. As much as we try to keep that away, there really is no such thing. And so science, we want to take it for what it is, right? And it can give us a lot of good information, but ultimately, it's not the end all. And so ultimately, we've got to think back to really how God created us and have a philosophy for how to apply the science. Because in our society, right, when kids get sick, right, so they rush them into the, into the doctor's office, ear, nose, and throat specialist, right, they're having sinus problems, what do they put them on? Antibiotics, right? That's what they've been doing for years. Ear infection, what do they give them? Antibiotics, even though we know that about 90% of ear infections are, are viral, right? What do antibiotics do for a viral infection? They do nothing, right? In fact, they hurt the immune system because good bacteria is what actually helps form our, our immune system and helps our body fight off sickness and disease, invading organisms like bacteria, viruses, things like that. So in our society, what we have is an antibiotic overdose, in a sense. And this is more so speaking to years in the past, although it's still, it's still taking place today. But penicillin, when that came out, we all thought it was the miracle cure, right? And so for years and years, whole generations were raised. Anytime they had a symptom or a problem, boom, right? Give them the antibiotics. Anybody cold? Anybody cold in here? Yes. Right, it's a little bit chilly. Um, anybody real hot? Because we might, I, I, can, I can tell you're not doing good. If somebody's in the back, we've got a, um, we've got a, whatever they call those things, thermometer or whatever. Thermostat, right? Go ahead and just kind of like push that, push that towards uh, max, right? Because it's on air conditioning, so if you just, you might have to take the box off. All right. We don't want to freeze you guys here. So, all right, anyways, 
So with the antibiotics, obviously, we, we've, we've been using them for way too long. And what, what this has shown, what the studies have shown now, is that we've done a lot more harm than good with the antibiotics. That we've actually killed and, 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 and defamed more people with them than we've actually saved. Right now, now, there's definitely a time and a place for antibiotics, no doubt about it. can save a life in an emergency situation. The problem is that's about 2% of healthcare, right? It's about 2% of the time right, that we're using antibiotics where it's actually beneficial. The other 98% of the time, we're actually hurting that individual. And that, that becomes the problem. And so when we look at this, so we know that antibiotics are a problem. And really the biggest problem is that it decreases phytochemical metabolism by the intestinal microflora. So who here has ever been to some of my other workshops? So one of the big things that we talk about is the good bacteria in our digestive system. Right, that you have one, this is almost hard to, hard to understand and hard to really truly value and appreciate, but you have nearly one quadrillion bacteria in your digestive system alone, right? One quadrillion. We have 75 trillion cells in our body, so we have 10 times more bacteria in our digestive system than we actually even have cells in our body. That if we really were to look at ourselves under a microscope, we look more like a, a bacteria, living, breathing bacterial hotel, right? <laughs> Anything else makes you feel good about yourself, right? So, uh, but that's, but ultimately, that's what's going on. That our body, that bacteria, very, very small organisms play an intimate, very, very key and intimate role in keeping us alive and healthy. It's a symbiotic relationship. On the flip side, though, there are bacteria and other viruses and other uh, yeasts and stuff like that, other invading organisms, opportunistic organisms that are not working for us, that they're parasites, right? And they actually start to break us down. The good thing is we have this competitive balance, right? And so we've got good bacteria on one side that are doing everything they can to prevent the bad bacteria and the bad organisms from growing, proliferating, and causing problems in our body. So when we go ahead and we take that antibiotic, <coughs> what are we doing? What do we do to our bacterial system? Destroy. We destroy it. Now, let's say we were having a problem with, uh, let's name a country out there, China or Korea or whatever it is. You guys think, let's say we're having some problems, maybe uh, trade embargoes, things like that. We're having some issues there. Um, you know, there's just some conflict. Do you think the best thing for us to do right away is just throw a bomb on them? Who thinks that would be the best thing? <laughs> Probably not. Think so? Probably not, right? Ends up, you know, might solve, a, uh, might solve, you know, might just uh, make you feel good or whoever was upset it to, to begin with, make them feel good in the early stages, but ultimately causes a lot more harm, a lot more conflict in the long run. This is what we do in our society. We're like, you know what? I've got the sniffles. I'm not feeling good. Let me go get a bomb so I can drop it in there, right, and just destroy everything, and, and maybe I'll get better, right? And we're just obviously giving, giving, just hoping that our body can recover and do the best it can. And for a time being, it might be able to do that, right? We might be able to do it, but ultimately we're suppressing things in our body and causing further destruction uh, that we didn't want. And so that's what we do with antibiotics. So antibiotics and breast cancer, definite link here. Look at all these studies. This is Journal of American Medical Association. They said that the inflammation plays a huge role in breast cancer growth, basically. And that when we're using antibiotics on a regular basis, in fact, what they said is if you used antibiotics more than six times in your life, right, more than six times, that you have a 68% greater risk of getting breast cancer in the course of your life. It's a huge change right there. Okay, baby aspirin. Who's ever taken aspirin before? So a lot of you guys that have heard my talks, we talk about this, right? So we go ahead and we take baby aspirin. Why would you... So a lot of people come into my office and their doctors put them on aspirin 
to prevent heart attacks, right? So let's make sense of this. Why, why would you take aspirin to prevent a heart attack? What does aspirin do? Thins the blood, right? That's right, sure does. So, teach, so it thins out the blood. Who's heard of platelets before? Raise your hand if you've heard of platelets. Yep. So platelets are your body's blood clotting factors. So what their job is, is to actually clot blood, right? To, to, to give it substance, to clot, so just in case you get a cut or whatnot. Here's the thing. So, so aspirin, what it actually does is it thins out your platelet counts, right? So it thins them out. But our body responds to something called homeostasis. Who's heard that term before? Homeostasis. That means balance or equilibrium, right? So what that refers to is this, is that if we thin out our platelet counts or we thin anything out in our body, okay? So we thin it out, our body's going to do the best it can to balance it out, right? If we thicken something, it's going to do the best it can, right? If we increase something, it's going to do the best it can to decrease it. Right? It's constantly seeking out balance and equilibrium. So let's say we're taking our aspirin, we're thinning out our platelet counts. What's our body do in response? Thickening them. Yeah, thickens <laughs> them back up, makes more platelets. Thank you, Priscilla. Absolutely, makes more platelets. So that's why you gotta take the aspirin every single day, right? Because you gotta counteract what the body's doing in response. Right? And what they've shown is that you actually have a greater who's here for the heart disease workshops? Some of you guys have heard of that? Some of you guys were here? We talked about how you actually have a forty one percent greater risk of stroke when you take aspirin every single day because you're playing this game of blood clotting, right? Thinning and thickening it, and you're, you're counteracting, you're actually uh, affecting what the body's actually trying to do naturally. And so on top of that, when we're messing with our blood cells, okay, is that gonna be good or bad for our white blood cells? What do you think? It's gonna be bad for our white blood cells, right? And white blood cells, what do they do for our body? What does our white blood cells do? That's right, they're part of the what system? Immune system. So their job, white blood cells' job is to, to hunt out, regulate bacteria, viruses, and mutated DNA, right? So mutated DNA, you get enough of those, they're replicating out of control, what do we call that? Cancer. Cancer, that's right, that's cancer. So if we're messing with our platelets, right, what's that going to do to our, our white, you think that's going to be good or bad for our white <laughs> blood cells? It's going to be bad. So then what happens to our cancer rate? It goes up. That's right. What they're saying is that if you get, if you take ibuprofen, right, so you take ibuprofen daily, increase your risk of breast cancer by 50%, you take aspirin, you can see the research right here, 81% greater risk of breast cancer, right, taking aspirin a day, right? You're not hearing this out in the news, right? It's being suppressed, but the reality is this is what's going on, okay? And so flu vaccine production. So let's look at this. All right, we're going to talk about really how we develop cancer, but I just want to show you guys a couple of these things because these are kind of cornerstone things in our medical system, right? Antibiotics, aspirin, and vaccines. Let's look at what's in this vaccine. Inactivated with formaldehyde. Who knows what formaldehyde is? That's embalming flu fluid, right? Is So if, if I had a jar of formaldehyde right here and I asked any of you guys to drink it, who would drink it? Right? Not unless you had a death wish, right? We would never want to get ourselves near it. In fact, um, I remember uh, going through school, right? We would have the, the human cadaver labs, okay? So, and uh, in these labs, obviously, it was a dead person. We would be dissecting them, and they'd obviously have it covered in formaldehyde, and, you know, it would stink when you go in there. And there was probably about 10% of uh, the student body that would actually get waivers so they wouldn't go in there because they were allergic to formaldehyde or they had reaction. And I remember every single time I go in, when I was finished, I would be exhausted. I'd be dehydrated and exhausted because my body was naturally turning on the signal, say, hey, we just took in a lot of toxins. That was a, a dangerous environment to be in 
now let's start getting that stuff out of our system. Let's detox. I would be exhausted. I'd take a nap or something, right? I had to drink a lot of water because it was dangerous. This is what we're what we're injecting into our system. It's also preserved with thimerosal, right? So the, who's heard that they took mercury out of vaccines? Right? Who's heard that, right? And that, that's true. They, they've taken it out of some of them, okay? Not flu vaccine. They haven't touched that one, okay? And with the other ones, guess what they replaced it with? Well, not formaldehyde, but they, had, they have formaldehyde in there already, right? So they, they never took formaldehyde out. That was never, you know, they never even thought about taking that out, okay? But not arsenic, but it was another heavy metal. It's aluminum, right? So, so who's heard the, the studies that say that, um, that uh, you know, that they do these studies and they say, um, vaccines don't cause autism, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Right. We've all heard of those those, those studies, okay? And so I, I'm not saying necessarily. I, I don't necessarily think it's the mercury, the thimerosal, but there's definitely a, nobody can deny. Ultimately, if you really look at the research, that there's a relationship between increased vaccination and increased amounts of autism. Nobody can deny that, right? Well, what they're really focusing on was that thimerosal, that ingredient, right? And this is what they've said is that it's not thimerosal that causes it. Because this is what they did with the research, is that they had a whole group where they were injecting them with a thimerosal-based, preservative-based vaccine, right? And they had another group where they took the thimerosal out. Guess what they replaced it with? Aluminum, right? <coughs> High amounts of aluminum, is that good for your body? No. That's not good, right? So then they injected the other pop part of the population that they were doing in this study, the other group, with the aluminum-based vaccine, right? So it's not really a placebo. It's still a vaccine, right? It still has a, a toxic metal, not to mention formaldehyde and all these other things, right? And what they found was that the findings were not statistically significant. So what they said was that, well, it can't be the thimerosal, so that was the only, the only hypothesis, so it can't be vaccines, right? That's basically what they said. And, and there's, there's definitely, vaccines aren't the only cause of autism, but they're definitely a player. They're definitely a player in that game because when you have a neurological insult, like, like mercury, aluminum, things like that, it's definitely, definitely going to affect brain tissue, okay? And so any of this kind of stuff, when we put it in our body, nobody takes that in and has no effect, right? You might not feel symptoms, but do you think injecting formaldehyde and thimerosal in your body is actually moving you closer to health? Who thinks it would move them closer to health? Of course not, right? Now, the hope and the goal behind the vaccine is that you create an antibody re response, Okay. And this is not a workshop for vaccines, but ultimately, and even if you do create that antibody response, right, and it's a desired response, you still put these two things, known carcinogens, into your body. So it can't be ultimately moving you closer to health. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. And so we got to rethink some of this stuff. And the H1N1 flu vaccine, okay, who heard of H1N1, right, all over the news lately? This, th this vaccine, they actually put cancer cells in this vaccine. Right? So this guy right here, this is Wolfgang Wodark, okay, chairman of the health committee um, in Europe. He said he was really concerned about this vaccine. The reason why he said the nutrient solution for the vaccine consists of cancerous cells from animals. And we don't know if, that, if there could be allergic reaction. Right? Are you kidding me? Allergic reaction? He's concerned about that. They're injecting cancerous cells into your body. Who thinks that would be good for you? Right? Well, apparently some PhDs and some scientists do because they put it in that vaccine, right? Absolutely, so apparently somebody thinks it's good for you. And most people have no idea. They don't, before they give you that vaccine, do they say, you know what? There is formaldehyde in here, mercury in here, there's cancer cells, there's aborted fetal apparatus, right? There's all these other things. Do they ever say that? 
No, they just say, you take this, boom, here you go, right? And so look, let's look at chemotherapy. So this is close to me because who's ever, who's ever watched somebody go through chemotherapy? Raise your hand. Yep. So when you watch somebody go through chemo, it's what, what's ultimately, what's kind of your response coming out of that? Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, perfectly said. It's depressing, right? I mean, it's really depressing because you think, I remember when I saw my grandfather, and I was 19 at the time, so I really wasn't thinking along these lines, but I was thinking, is this the best we have? Right? Is this, is this how it happens? Right? That's what was going through my mind. Is this, is this what happens when you get old? Is this what happens? Right? Most people have this concept in, in our society. They don't think it's going to be them, but ultimately, here's what a lot of people tell me. Well, I'm going to die from something, right? Who's ever heard that before? Oh, yeah. I'm going to die from something, right? So maybe it'll be cancer. Maybe I'll spend six months on chemo, have my organs pulled out and suffer, right? Lose 100 pounds or whatever it is, right? So let's look at chemotherapy, what this really, what the research really says about this stuff. And, and um, what's that article? Here it is. I'll talk about this a little bit later. But chemotherapy and radiation. So you guys saw some of the statistics in that video that we showed in the beginning. But look at this, chemotherapy and radiation damage damages respiratory enzymes and healthy cells and overloads them with toxins. Now that's a key, key statement because it said respiratory enzymes. We're going to talk about later on as we go on how cancer, and it's already been found years ago back in 1949, a gentleman actually got the Nobel Prize for finding out what type of environment that our body has to be in for cancer cells to grow and to thrive, right? And a big thing he mentioned was a low oxygen environment, okay? Now, when we are taking in, obviously, air, our respiratory system, there we go, a couple people are breathing deep, right? <laughs> our, respi our respiratory system, obviously, is what metabolizes, excuse <coughs> me, what actually takes in that oxygen. I think I need to breathe deep. <laughs> That's right. This is a good time for you guys to so just take a deep breath. <laughs> so it's our respiratory system that obviously takes that in, and those cells are able to get oxygen out to um, all of our major cells in our body. So this damages respiratory enzymes. So chemotherapy, obviously the goal of that, similar to the antibiotic, the goal is, is, is declaring war against cancer, right? So... Who here thinks that war is always the best option? <laughs> Typically it's not, right? It, it can be at a certain period of time, right? Not, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> a certain time and a place where you, you, you might have to go to war, but it's ultimately it's not the best option, not the best thing. That's what chemotherapy is. And so the goal there is to destroy the cancer cells. But in when it does that, it also destroys our own tissue. Okay, now look at this right here. Dr. Dan Harper, <clears throat> chemotherapist, he found out that only 9% of oncologists, 9% actually get chemotherapy when they get cancer. Okay? Does that blow you away? Okay, because guess what? About 90, over 90%, I think it's like 94% actually um, in their practice have chemotherapy as part of their treatment base with anybody that comes into their office with cancer. Right? So even if they do a surgery, there's typically chemotherapy involved with it. Right, because they want to. Their goal is to prevent the spread of malignant cells. Right, so it's really and ultimately, it's not always a doctor's fault. I can't necessarily blame them because who's heard of malpractice before? Right, that's a big issue, isn't it? Okay, and because their license and their scope and the quote-unquote best practices for their system says this is what you do. Okay, you give chemotherapy 
uh, before, after, kind of however the program is. I'm not an oncologist, so I don't know exactly how that works. Okay, but because their best practices system says that, if they don't follow it, guess who's liable? They are. So let's say that person gets surgery. They say, you know what? Let's not do chemotherapy right here. Okay, and it was it fit into that best practices system. They don't recommend it. That person goes out, right? Because they, they never got to the cause of the cancer, and we're going to talk about how that works to begin with, okay? They never got to the cause. They go out, and they get cancer again, right? And when, a, when a person gets cancer for the second time, right, especially after a doctor says, you know what, we got it the first time, you think they're happy about that? No. Of course not, right? And so for some people, especially we have a very uh, uh, a society where we love to go to court, right? So they want to point the finger. So guess who, who takes the blame there? The doctor, right? Absolutely. He can lose his license. I mean, he can get in big-time trouble. So even though he may not do it for himself or for his family, by the scope of his practice, what does he have to do? Yeah, he's got to do that. Protocol. Exactly. So because the guys who make, who make the general rules and general statements, right, a lot of times those guys have hidden incentives in how much chemotherapy drugs they can, they can sell. And so not just because the doctor might be a good doctor, right? He may be a good doctor, but this is what he's got to do. And so it says most cancer patients in this country die of chemotherapy. Like my grandfather, he went downhill really quick, right? And it was really the chemotherapy that took him. Chemotherapy does not eliminate breast, colon, or lung cancers, okay? This fact has been documented for over a decade. It's well-researched that it does nothing against that. There's only a couple cancers that chemotherapy has any kind of results with. Typically, they're blood-borne cancers, like a leukemia, Hodgkin's, right, where it actually has like 30% results or more, or more. All these other ones, breast cancer, colon cancer, you're, you're going to see it's like 1% or 2% five-year survival rate, right? It's a very, very low chance that it's actually going to even improve it. And so let's keep going. Despite widespread use of chemotherapies, breast cancer mortality has not changed in the last 70 years. This guy right out of New England Journal of Medicine, right? Rough estimate, neurosurgeons do well to cure one in every 1,000 brain cancer patients. So, you know, surgery, in my opinion, is obviously it's not the best option, but it, in my opinion, it's a lot better option than doing all these dangerous drugs, right? So at least you can get the cancer out of there, right? The tumor's huge. At least you can get that thing out of there if possible, right? And then try to repair the body and repair the body's healing system. And we're going to talk more about how cancer develops, and you'll understand this to a greater degree. But that would, that would be a better option than poisoning the system and hoping the body will recover, okay? Um, and you can't fault a neurosurgeon, right? This guy is trying to save somebody's life and do a brain surgery, right? The, the unfortunate reality is, you know, if they get one in a thousand, they, that's amazing, right? I mean, there's a high failure rate there. I mean, they're just doing the best they can, obviously. And so that's why, that's why we always use a slogan. It's not like it's neurosurgery, right, or something brain surgery, right? And so radiation therapy slows the growth of adult tumors, gaining perhaps one month of life. May result in a cure of only 500 to 1,000 patients, right, out of... Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, 700,000 or whatever it is. Similarly, chemotherapy, despite 30 years of clinical trials, has not resulted in developing a single drug or drug combination that elicits more than occasional transient response to primary brain tumors, right? So this is one of the top guys right here, top <laughs> oncologists. This is his direct quote. This is what he's saying. This is what he's talking about. Okay, by the way, how much money do these things cost? Right? We're not even getting much results. Okay? Look at this quote right here. Charles Huggins, 
Nobel Prize winner, okay, medical doctor, he says there are worse things than death. In his opinion, one of them is chemotherapy. Who's, who's watched somebody go through chemotherapy? Right? For many people, some people are able to get through it pretty well, right? Thank God. Okay? But for most people, they probably agree with you, right? That that is terrible suffering. And of course, in our society, okay, for me personally, um, my belief system and my faith, I'm not as scared of death, right? That death is, is actually, you know, a glorious thing. It's an amazing thing. It's, it's a transition into the afterlife. But in the medical model, ultimately in the medical model, death is failure, right? And so they're going to throw any combination of things that they can do to prevent death, okay? And in certain circumstances, that's fine. For me, what my life is about, and I think many of you guys would probably agree, I want to optimize my life while I'm on the planet so I can achieve everything God has for me. I want to have incredible energy. I want to be able to live my life with freedom, with energy, and, and, and just the, the vitality to do whatever it is I want to do. Okay? But I'm not afraid to die. Okay? In a medical model, death is the failure. right? And so they would rather go through radical treatments that literally destroy your body in order to, to, to at least suspend death. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a philosophy concept. To me, man, I would rather I would rather just die and, and the whole time trying to optimize my health the whole time until I die rather than trying to destroy my system in hopes that I can get a little bit more time, right? So different concept. So bottled death. This is what um, President Hubert Humphrey said describing chemotherapy before he died, right? Before he got it. He called it bottled death, right, as he was taking it. So chemotherapy, recent study claimed that the overall contribution of chemotherapy to five-year survival, because remember, five-year survival means what? Cured. You're cured, right? You're cured of cancer, and you could die the next day, right? But you're cured, okay? is estimated at 2.3% in the data from Australia, 2.1% in data from the USA. So if they said, so if they said, if they said, Priscilla, you have a four-centimeter tumor in your breast, Right? I mean, God forbid, but let's say they said that, okay, that, um, you know, we need to start chemotherapy, radiation right away. Um, you know, it's going to give us your best chance of survival, okay? It's, it's a 2% greater chance that you're going to make it over five years. Now, you see all these people right here suffering, right, with no hair that are coughing up blood? That's what you're going to be going through, okay? But don't worry, it's a 2% greater survival rate, and... Um, we're going to keep the price down for you. It's probably going to be about $60,000 for the six-month treatment. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Right? Good sales pitch right there. <laughs> That's not quite how they do it, though, do they? Yeah. They don't really give you all those facts. Okay? So let's look at... So outside of the chemotherapy, okay, outside of that, let's look at some other things. Okay? So there are other drugs that they give you, too. So... These are called tumor-inhibiting drugs. So these are drugs that slow the growth of cancer. So cancer cells, they're growing out, out of control, and we're going to talk about how this works over the next couple weeks. But this is what the tumor-inhibiting drugs do, and this is a New York Times article. This is where I got all these numbers. This is December 4, 2009, okay? You guys are welcome to read this, or I can email it to you if you want it. Maybe I'll throw that in the package. You guys can all read this, this article right here. They were talking about some of these drugs, Okay. And look at this one right here. So colon cancer drug, $10,000 a month. Avastin, lung cancer drug, $8,800 a month. The one that they're really focusing on in this one is Folatin, right, for T-cell lymphoma, $30,000 a month. And this is what they said in this article. Okay, I have it highlighted in here. Um, what they said in here, yep, this is what the guy said. He goes, 
They're talking all about this drug and how insurance companies are like, gosh, this is outrageous for this drug. You know, and, and this guy says, um, this drug is not a home run. Dr. Brad Call, a lymphoma specialist at the University of Wisconsin, said during meeting at an advisory committee for the FDA, he said, it's not even a double. It's a single, right? This is what he said. They said um, they did, they took 109 patients. Okay, or, yeah, so they had a, they had 109 patients, okay? And they took these people and 27%, they put them all on this drug, only 27% saw a reduction in tumor size. 27%, right? So it's almost like one out of four, okay? That saw the reduction and they said the reductions, they lasted for about 9.4 months, okay? But only 12% of the people that actually had the tumor reduction, only 12% had it last for more than 14 weeks, okay? But that during that period of time, this is what it would have cost them right here, $30,000 right there for 27%, right? For, for a one in a four chance that it's going to even reduce the tumor size a little bit. You think there's side effects with those drugs? Yeah. Is there any drug that there's not side effects with, right? Absolutely, there's huge side effects with these things, right? I mean, it's terrible. Constipation, uh, tired all the time, right? Sleepy, right? Because one of the things, they're inhibiting cancer cells, so they inhibit all cells from really um, replicating at, at an effective rate. So you get lower, you get cells of lower integrity in your body. So it causes skin problems, joint problems, inflammation in your system, all kinds of problems like that. Look at this right here. So $34,000 a week for this pediatric leukemia drug, right? And the reason why they can do that is because the patient, right, sitting there and they really don't feel like they have any options, right? Who here has kids? Who here has kids? Okay. And so imagine, so raise your hand again. So imagine, Valerie, imagine um, all of a sudden Jared started having some symptoms, right? You brought him into the medical doctor. You brought him into your doctor's office. They ran some tests. They said, you know, Valerie, they, they took you aside and they were like, Valerie, you know, it's really hard to say this, but, you know, Jared, Jared's got leukemia, right? I mean, it's ultimately based on the stage, he's got about eight months to live. Right? I mean, this is our best option. Is we need to go ahead and immediately start getting them on these drugs. Right? I mean, you're in that model. You're intimidated. You're like, whatever I got to do. Right? Whatever I got to do. I mean, ultimately, they tell you to go to Mayo Clinic. Where do you go? Mayo Clinic. Right? Whatever you got to do. Absolutely. Because you're in that model. You're thinking, this is my only chance. Okay? This is the only thing I do. So let's go into this right here. Who's doing the marketing? So not only are the drugs... But also, let's look at the tests. Who, who here has ever gotten a mammogram before? Okay, so some of you guys know this, for example, and I think um, after you see this, you're going to have some different thoughts on mammograms. But we've always thought, man, mammograms save lives, right? Because if we can find it early, this is the concept. If we can find it early, we can prevent it later. So when they're talking about cancer survival rates and how they've actually increased, how our cancer survival rates have increased, this is why, because we're able to detect it earlier so people are still not really living any further. We're just defining it faster, right? So it means that they have longer kind of span where they know they have a diagnosis. So dangers of mammograms. You guys, this, I always want to show you guys all this stuff because it's not me talking, right? This is where I got all this information. The Lancet, one of the top journals, they said, obviously, the benefits have been overexposed, right? That, that we've been promoting the benefits, but really what it's found is that the dangers are actually worse. Right? The latest evidence shifts the balance towards harm and away from the benefits. Women between the ages of 40 and 49 who have regular mammograms are twice as likely to die from breast cancer as women who are not screened. 
Who? I mean, this was in the news recently. Do you guys know that? Anybody read read the news and you saw like this mammogram thing, right? Where they were going to take it out. They were gonna, they were going to say people that women that are over forty, right, between forty and forty nine, instead of getting it every year, they said they should maybe maybe we'll just kind of lengthen it to every other year. Okay, that's what they were saying at first. Saying it really, research says we shouldn't be doing it every year. Guess what happened? Cancer rate went down. Well, now actually, what happened was the the oncology firms and, and the the uh, radiology firms and all these places went berserk. They went crazy over this. I get I read Medscape. I read these. I get all these articles, top articles. Um, they go over basically. They, they they give me like a synopsis of the best research articles. You know, and I, I get these things all the time. And um, and a lot of times they're talking about what's going on in, in uh, healthcare, and so these firms and all these people just absolutely went berserk about this, right? Because obviously they're losing big time money, right? And so, but look, this is why they made those those decisions. Okay, number one is that mammograms, okay, cannot detect cancer till the tumor's already at least four to ten billion cancer cells. Right, so four to ten billion. Can't remember. You got seventy-five trillion in your body, so it has to be at least four to ten billion. That's roughly eight to fifteen years of development. So who here would want to wait eight to fifteen years while something grows, metastasizes in your body before you do anything about your health? Anybody? This is what we do. This is what we teach our society. Just go every single year, get your mammogram. If your mammogram says that it's not there, then you're clean slate. Right? Can you have cancer? Go. To mammog- go get a mammogram, them not detect it, right? Walk out of there. It's probably a lot of people and think you're fine, and have cancer growing throughout your body. Is that possible? Yeah, real possible, right? Look at this: four exposures within two years because they take two shots with it, usually side and the front, right? Within two years equals one rad exposure. What that refers to? I take X-rays in this office. About a thousand of the x-rays that I take in my office. So if I were to just sit you there and just take a thousand x-rays, right? That's the equivalent. People always ask me about x-rays, right? I know a lot about radiology and I know that, you know, a small little x-ray like the x-rays we take here, really nothing. I mean, it's really small. I mean, you're walking outside, you get as much radiation as a small little x-ray, okay? But if I were to x-ray you a thousand times, big problems, right? Obviously, it's a cumulative dose. That's what it always is. It's a large dose over time. That's what mammograms do. By the time a woman has 10 mammograms, her risk of having at least one false positive is 49%. And this is one of the big things that they're doing, obviously, because, uh, again, watching watching their back, they would rather say something is cancer, scare you to death, right? Then they would miss something, right? Obviously, that's and that to me, I mean, that makes sense. But nevertheless, there, there's really never a good result out of mammograms. Ultimately, I mean, it's like there's never really a good result out of that. It's not like um, they say, you know what? They look at a mammogram, they're like, you know what? This is great news. Now we can take this information and optimize your life. That you can sleep better at night based on the information we've got with this mammogram. That uh, that you can function better. That you can have more energy. Blah blah blah. It never really gives you good news. Right? It gives you bad news, and then um, maybe uh, news not, that's not so bad, I guess you could say. It never really gives you bad, good news. Less than one-half to one percent of those who get mammograms will turn out to have breast cancer. Right? So it's, we're, we're constantly looking at getting, getting mammograms, but ultimately, it's not the best thing. I, I like this little cartoon right here. Yeah, you can look at that. <laughs> 
And then let's look at this right here. So mammograms, let's look at a couple of the reasons why they're bad. Not only the radiation. We know radiation affects DNA, right? It actually causes a mutation in the DNA. Now, there's something, there's, there's a, a mentality, it's, it's called hormesis, a philosophy. Who's here for my Never Get Sick Again workshop? Some of you guys may have been for that. We, we talked about hormesis, and what that means is that when your body is exposed to small amounts of toxins, not a bad thing, because your body will actually challenge your body to get, get stronger, more resilient. But when we're exposed to large amounts, then it's a problem. And large amounts, like, like one radiation exposure dose, like a mammogram, actually causes massive changes in the DNA. And so, look at this, as early as 1928, physicians were warned to, to handle cancer spread with care, right? And when they actually compress it, causes a lethal spread of malignant cells by rupturing the small blood vessels, right? Actually causes massive problems, lots of research behind this. This is what we do. So there's a better choice. A lot of people ask me, well, if I don't get the mammograms, right, then how do I know? A lady was saying that to me today. Well, then what do I do? How do I, how do I know if there's something growing, right? My opinion, I, I kind of take two... I can, I can see two different ways of looking at this. First off, for me, I don't need a diagnosis to know that I need to be urgent about my health, right? For most people in society, we just keep, you know, eating our hot dogs and, you know, doing whatever, right? Um, drinking our frappuccinos until all of a sudden we get the scare of our life and then it's like freak out, right? Do whatever you got to do, okay? For some people, that's the approach because they never create the urgency about health, okay? For me, I don't need that, right? That I'm gonna, that health is, for me, it's, it's my, my highest value system. Who here would say health is, is the health of them and their families their highest value system, right? Most people, most people would, would say that, but then we also have to back it up with action, right? For me, taking care of my health is the most important thing outside of obviously living in value system with my health, or I'm sorry, with my faith, my, my health is, comes you know, right behind that because I know God put me on the planet so I can reach, reach the potential he has for me. And I know I have to stay healthy in order to do that. So I don't need that urgency. I know that you know, if I'm not taking care of myself, I can tell you right off the bat, if I don't take care of myself, if I'm not living the lifestyle that I live and the lifestyle that I teach, then I will definitely get diabetes. Um, I'll definitely get that. I'll probably get it when I'm like 30, 40, you know, somewhere in the next 10, 15 years. Okay? I will definitely get cancer. Right? And I'll suffer a miserable death. I know it. I already know. Right? I probably won't even make it till 60 or 70 years old. I already know it. So I don't need the urgency. I know that I've got to take action now. For most people, right, they want to, they want to constantly be looking. Okay? Now, there's definitely a protocol that will prevent cancer. It'll give you the best chance to prevent cancer. So for me, I just follow that protocol. And that's what I would recommend for most people. If you do want to get it tested, this is the best way to get it tested, thermography. Who's heard of thermography before? Yep. And so it actually looks at heat in, in the breasts. And what we know is that with cancer cell, cancer cells, and I'm going to talk more about this next week, is that they're, they're very um, fuel demanding, right? And so what they do is they actually shunt, they grow right around blood vessels, and they shunt and they influence the blood vessels to grow. It's called arborization, where blood vessels actually grow right around the cancer cells. And it becomes very dangerous because the cancer obviously can replicate faster because they're getting an instant energy source. And so when they're doing a thermography, if they see an area like this right here that has increased, that's hotter, that's warmer, has increased uh, metabolic rate, then we know that that's, that that's cancer cells that are developing, right? It's fibroblastic 
uh, or fibrocystic uh, disease right here that's developing right there. Um, good news about thermography is there's no compression, no radiation exposure. It's an infrared scan, okay? Um, that it's safe, easy, and pain-free. Um, can you guys, we actually have some seats right up here. If you guys want to come around, yep, right over here. All right. So ultimately, let's go into the mentality that we have to have. And so in our society, we've been taught for years that with things like cancer, heart disease, stuff like that, that ultimately we really don't have a choice in the matter, right? That if we're genetically designed for it, then that's what's going to happen, okay? And what they did when they were looking at this, the Human Genome Project, okay, who's ever heard of this project before? Okay, a lot of you guys. So they took 100, they thought that there was 144,000 genes that really made up who we were. As, as a human being, and if they could, they could figure out ways to replicate these genes, they thought this was the hidden, hidden problem that caused all disease, right? And if they could find a way to actually replicate these genes, then they could prevent cancer, they could prevent disease, right? Basically cure all disease. What they did when they did this research is they only found that there were 20,000 genes in the human genome. So it was a lot shorter than the number that they originally expected. Based on that result, okay, what they realized was that their original theories that genes determine disease and determine our fate was actually very flawed, okay? What we found is that genes do play a role, okay? But ultimately, top scientist David Baltimore, who actually did the Human Genome uh, Project, he actually led that study, he estimated they, they probably play about a 30% role, okay? About 30%. The other 70% is the environment that the genes are in. Right? Who's heard of this term, epigenetics, before? It means outside of the gene. What we know is the environment outside the gene determines what kind of DNA strands, what kind of strands are going to be replicated, and how that DNA is going to function and what the body is going to do. Right? And so as we're looking at this, ultimately the great news about this is that we determine that environment and that our body is self-healing. This is Harvard study right here, okay, 2005. What they said was this, that our body was designed for 100 and 120 years, great and amazing life, right? Doesn't the Bible say the same thing? Yes. Right, it does. Yes. And so that we're designed for health, but that we also create disease, basically that we have a disease switch, right? They, they called it like a loaded gun, okay? So if you're walking around with a loaded gun, what do you have to do in order to create any damage? Pull the trigger, right? They said, if we provide a toxic or deficient environment, guess what we do to that trigger? Well, we pull it, right? And we're going to talk about that, toxic or deficient. I'm going to talk about what that means. But that's not how we were designed. They said we were designed for amazing health. We create disease based on what we do or possibly what we don't do. Okay? And so great news is it's being done. There are other cultures around the, around the world where cancer is unheard of, right? So some of these cultures, the Abkhazians in, in, uh, in eastern Russia, or, sorry, western Russia, southwestern Russia, Vilakambamas in um in Ecuador, the Hunzins in India, the Okinawas in Japan, these cultures, they ultimately, up until this generation, like for the Okinawas, their culture has been westernized. Up until this generation, they, they, they never heard of cancer, right? Cancer was basically non-existent, right? These are Hunzins right here in India. This gentleman right here said to be 116 years old, right? No cane, no medications, right? He looks like the happiest person alive, right? He's just like hanging out. All these guys right here, all over 100 years old, okay? They're just like hanging out, enjoying their life, right? No wheelchairs, right? None of that kind of stuff. Who wants to be like that? 
That's my goal. Right, absolutely. That's my goal right Where's there. The golf club? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Right? How about Jack Elaine? Who's heard of Jack Elaine? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he's 96 right now, right? This is a picture of him. I think he was in his 70s right here. Just ripped. Look at him. So he's 96 right now. This guy's still doing everything he wants to do, right? Does push ups every morning when he wakes up. His wife's 84. I saw an interview with them. He was on the Jay Leno show not too long ago. Um, I saw it on YouTube. And, um,. I mean, he's just running around like on Jay Leno. He like got to the edge of his chair. He's like doing dips, right? He cranked out like 50 dips, right? And so, I mean, this guy does whatever he wants to do, right? Because he's living this anti-cancer lifestyle and he's living it every day, right? By the way, when he was 15, very, very sick, very sickly, right? And arthri- arthritic joints, juvenile diabetes. I mean, he had all kinds of problems. He was basically, I mean, it wasn't going to make it too much longer, um, he, walked, he he met a man, Paul Bragg. Some of you guys have been on my Whole Foods tour. I talk about him, okay, the, the shopping tour. He met him, right? And, and Paul Bragg basically, it was basically a bit, you know, uh, event like this, right? Um, and Paul Bragg told him, you know what? If you change your lifestyle, you start doing the things I tell you to do, then you can regain your health. And uh, Jacqueline did that, instantly regained his health, you know, dedicated his entire life to promoting this throughout throughout the country. And he's a chiropractor, by the way. Right? In fact, the reason why he became a chiropractor is that Paul Bragg, his, who was a naturopath, his, his mentor said, if I were to go back to school, I'd become a chiropractor. So Jack Lane did. I became a chiropractor, exercise specialist, stuff like that. And so he's, he's my mentor, my role model. Right? And I want to live like he did. And so we look at this. The reason why Jack Lane could be 15 years old, sick and decrepit, on his way to an early death, and then completely reverse that is because he changed the environment that his cells were in. We're going to talk about that. Like our body is made up of 75 to 100 trillion cells. So how many cells? 75, 75 to 100 trillion cells. That you make 100 billion new cells every single day of your life. Right? 100 billion every day. That our heart, that, that we have 75 billion cells in our heart, yet every seven months we have a new heart. Every six months we have a new liver. That our body is constantly regenerating, constantly in this process of healing. Right? So I want everybody to stand up real quick. Okay? Look over at your neighbor. Pick a neighbor. (laughs) Give him a high five and say, I want to regenerate healthy cells. There we go. All right. That's right. Who wants to live till they're 100? I do. I do. That's right. Tell your partner, I'm going to live 100 years strong and healthy, maybe 122. Right? Say that. All right. We want to proclaim it. That's right. Let's think about how this works. I saw you guys were falling asleep on me, so get you out. Sorry, there's a lot of talking. Sorry about that. Okay. So, the cause of disease comes down to this right here. This is where we get really excited about this stuff. Toxicity or deficiency at the cellular level. And so... Homeostasis, we talked about that, stable internal environment. So our body, we create disease when we're either deficient or we're toxic. And we look at it, disease equal is when more toxins are coming in than are coming out. Who's been to other workshops? So we talk about this all the time, right? How more toxins coming in, less coming out. Health is when less toxins are coming in, more are coming out. So it's just a fact that we're going to have a lot of toxins coming into our system. It's just an absolute fact, especially in our environment today. The goal is that we're expelling them and that we're healing more at a, at a higher rate than we are promoting disease in our body. And so, let's look at this. Health is when our body is pure and sufficient. So health is when our body is what? 
pure and sufficient. And sufficient. That's right. So we need a pure and sufficient environment. Disease is when our body is toxic and deficient. So disease is when what? Toxic, toxic and deficient. That's right. So this is repetition. This is how we learn better right here. Okay? So absolutely. So this is key to understand this. Health. Who here thinks health is when you're feeling good? Okay? Because it's not. My grandfather, I'll tell you, my grandfather, he um, he felt great. In fact, all his blood tests looked good. He went home. He was playing golf. 72. He went to open a sliding glass door. Let the cat in. Okay? Door was locked. He didn't know it was locked, so he's pulling on that thing. Okay? He doesn't know it's locked, right? So what do you do? Kind of yank on it. That's what he did. He heard crack. His arm went limp. And we rushed him to the hospital. He had metastatic cancer spread throughout his body and his bones. Right? So he had been given a clean slate of health. Yeah, this is what was going on in his body. Because he thought he was healthy because he felt good. Right? So it's really not that. It's really how our cells are functioning. So health is about what our cells are doing. Right? And so these 75 to 100 trillion cells in our body need eight things to function normally and remain healthy. So what are those eight things? Okay, nutrients, right? So a lot of people will, will tell me, well, nutrition, right? And that definitely plays a role. Next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking all about nutrition. Number one, nutrients. We've got to have the right nutrients, okay? Number two, oxygen. We're going to talk about the big role that that plays in this. Number three is water, okay? Water, right? I hope everybody had a good chance to drink some of the good water we have here, right? Make sure that you're well hydrated. Sunlight. Who was out in the sunshine this weekend? Awesome. You started... That, that was awesome. Anybody that got out in the sunshine, you ramped up your body's ability to fight cancer by doing that. Who's ever heard that sunlight causes cancer? Yeah, all the way up. We're going to talk about that and what that, what that really means, okay? So rest, detoxification. Our body's got to be able to detox well. Proper pH. We're going to talk about how to alkalize. So we're going to go into detail on all of these things during this program. Okay, and then finally, our nerve impulse, which most people really don't understand don't take for, and, and kind of take for granted. We're going to talk about that. Okay, look at this quote right here, the incredible cell. So this gentleman right here, Nobel Prize winner, he said, The cell is immortal. It's merely the fluid in which it floats that degenerates. Renew this fluid at regular intervals. Give the cell what it requires for nutrition. And as far as we know, the pulsation of life can go on forever. And actually, what he actually did, this, this guy right here, one of the reasons why he won the Nobel Prize, he took a chicken cell. Now, chickens typically only live, I think it's like 10 or 15 years. He kept this chicken cell alive in this environment for over 27 years, right? Well beyond what its quote-unquote lifestyle was, what its uh, lifespan was supposed to be. And, he, and it was thriving after 27 years. No signs of biological damage or anything. And so this is what he said, that the cell is met is, is immortal in a sense, right? Ultimately, we've got a lot of things coming against it, and there's a balancing effect. And so, you know, not, I mean, you know, we're not going to be immortal, but the reality is, he said, like he says, we're not actually designed for, for early death or for disease, right? Very smart man. So he talks all about it's the fluid, the fluid that's the main thing, right? What is the cell in? What's the environment? So look at this right here. When a fish is sick, what do we naturally think? Change the water. We don't think about sticking an antibiotic in there, right? Or a chemotherapy drug or something like that. Immediately, we're thinking, change the water. So it's the same thing with our body, right? So proper pH. We're going to talk a little bit about this. All disease, who's heard of like acidic and alkaline environments in our body? Some of you guys probably have heard of this stuff. All disease associated with an acidic environment. All disease, right? Now we're going to talk about how this works and and why we, we develop an acidic environment. 
So the balance between those things is absolutely key to being healthy and well. So in our bloodstream, our bloodstream should be at 7.365. That should be the pH running through our bloodstream at all times. So what's the pH? What should it be? 7.365. That's right. So oxygen. Let's look at this. The cause of cancer, this is Otto Warburg, a doctor, PhD, two-time Nobel Prize winner. 1949, he made this quote. 1949, guys. Right? He said, the cause of cancer is no longer a mystery. We know it, it occurs whenever any cell is denied 60% of its oxygen requirements. Have you guys ever heard that? No. No, right? Doctors aren't telling people this. Most medical doctors don't even really understand this. Okay? They really don't. Right? And so the moment somebody gets cancer, do they ever think about the cause or what do they immediately do? The treatment, right? It's right to treatment. You need surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, whatever it is. They never say, you know what? Here's My mindset is this. Cancer comes down to the body not healing the way that it should, right? So our body is literally regenerating 100 million cells every single day, right, that our body is regenerating, okay? So if our body is constantly healing, then how do people end up with the same problems? We have to ask, why is our body not healing itself, right? Why is it not healing the way that it should? What's taking place? What's causing that? What am I toxic in? What am I deficient in? What's causing that problem? That's not what they ask in, in the medical model, right? And so these are the questions we really got to ask. So alkaline tissue, one of the reasons why that's so key is that it allows oxygen, it actually enhances oxygen, the oxygenation process. Acidic tissue actually causes um, it to be poorly oxygenated. We're going to talk about how that works. It has to do with the red blood cells and the charges with the red blood cells. And how when we're in an acidic environment, they tend to clump together. So you get more vicious blood, right, which moves through the capillaries of very small vessels at a slower rate, and it's not able to move quickly enough, and it loses its oxygen, right? And so that's one of the big aspects of it. <clears throat> so acid, when we think about it, it settles in our weakest spots first. So you guys know we have two major um, circulatory systems in our body. One is our bloodstream. The other is what? Lymph. lymph, absolutely. So Jamie said lymph. Thank you, Jamie. Excellent answer. So our lymphatic system. Okay, we have a couple major drainage areas in our lymphatic system. One of them is like our solar plexus area. Okay, so right down in this area. What major organs are right down there? Not necessarily the liver, but intestines, right? Colon. Pancreas. Well, pancreas a little bit higher. Um, colon. Your ovaries, right, if you're a lady, if you're a man, what's down there? Prostate, right, absolutely all of those major areas, right? So that's one of them, okay? A couple of the other ones, so you said pancreas, right? So this is a little bit closer to the pancreas, right? So right in this area on the left, and then right over here, right, right under the axillary region, we have a major lymphatic duct right there, okay? And so right under the shoulder blade, or I'm sorry, right under the armpit, what kind of cancer we, we think about there? Lung. Yeah, breast, could be lung, right? Breast, absolutely. So here are the major areas when that lymphatic system's not fired up, not moving things through our body real quickly, is where the toxins start to develop, right? And they start to sit there and cause massive cellular damage, okay? And you can see exactly how that works. Those are our dead zones, okay? So let's look about look at, and for me, I love science and I love to look at research and things like that, but God's instilled this concept into me. I want to look at science, but I, I look at it from, from one perspective. I want to see how God designed us, 
and what we need to do to harmonize the way he created us, right? And he gave us a lot of these words of wisdom right there in the Bible. And right here in Genesis, it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, every tree which is the fruit of, and the fruit of the tree yielding seed. So you should bear, or so that shall be your meat, right? And I, I'm not against, it go, kind of goes on a little bit on this. Most of you guys know I'm not against eating meat. I eat meat. Right? Obviously, what kind of meat do I eat? Grass-fed. Grass That's right. Absolutely. So I had made a shake today for lunch. Guess what I had in my shake? Who, who knows? Grass-fed meat. <laughs> yeah, it's a new shake. Making some grass-fed meat in there. No. What did I put in there? I put some of the. I put some turmeric in there. That's right. We're going to talk about turmeric. Powerful cancer fighter. So I did put some turmeric in there. What else I put in there? I put a little bit of fish oil in there. Did I put it in? In the beginning or the end? And that's right. What else did I put in there? Blueberry, frozen blueberries. Blueberries loaded with antioxidants. We're going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks, right? Cinnamon. Cinnamon's number two on our antioxidant list. We're going to be mentioning antioxidants. So those of you guys who are like, "What's this guy talking about?" Right? Um, just, just hang in there. We're going to go through this. Okay. Um, I put raw egg in there, right? So I put a, a good raw egg in there, right? Tastes like. Yeah, you'll see. See how this works. Okay, don't worry. About about it. Okay, you'll see how it works. Those of you guys that have been through this, that have been to our recipe nights, you probably you probably drank this for lunch too, so a lot of you guys know about this. But I put in all these anti-cancer foods, right? All these powerful anti-cancer foods. So it was great. For this morning, I had a green shake, right? So I had greens powders, right? So all this massive chlorophyll, you know, I had a, had a green shake. That was great. So let's think about why plants are so important. Symbiotic relationship, okay? So... Oh, back to this actually real quick just before I got I got excited about my shake. Sorry, guys. Um, so b- before that I said I recommend grass-fed meat, right, rather than grain-fed. There's a lot of reasons. We'll go into that, what that actually means, why we want to do that, okay? But ultimately, everything that we eat, even when we eat meat, it's an indirect, it should be indirectly a way that we're taking in green, right, chlorophyll and light energy. And we're going to talk about how that works um, exactly. But ultimately, that's the kind of meat that we want is grass-fed meat. And ultimately, we want a lot of fresh, clean, raw vegetables in our diet as well. Um, and so let's think about why that is. Vital relationship. They provide carbon dioxide. We, or I'm sorry. They provide oxygen. We provide the carbon dioxide. So we mutually sustain each other. It's amazing how that works. Everything in God's system works with, it's symbiotic, right? So God's system is all about symbiotic relationships, glorifying symbiotic relationships. Man's system is about, you know, basically um, getting in there and, and it's all about, you know, survival of the fittest in a sense, right? Um, which doesn't necessarily have to be so, okay? We provide nutrients through the recycling of our bodies. They provide nutrients to assimilate um, absorbing sunlight through photosynthesis. So light is the driving force. So when we're looking at this, really... The absorption of that sunlight is key because what what's the substance that gives green plants their green color? Chlorophyll. Chlorophyll. That's right. Chlorophyll allows plants. They're called autotrophic, right? They can produce their own nutrient value by taking the sunlight and the water and being able to produce things through that. And so when we're looking at that, that same aspect, that chlorophyll plays a very intimate role in our red blood cells, right? So our blood cells right down here. Let's think about how that works. Light equals green equals blood equals flesh. So the chlorophyll is the blood of the plant, right? It's the blood and the life of the plant 
Same thing with our body, right? That the bloodstream, the the quality and the integrity of those cells is so important. So when we're taking tumor inhibiting drugs, we're limiting our body's ability to replicate cells. It's also affecting the integrity of our red blood cells. So we get lower oxygen content, right? Because red blood cells, of course, they hold what? What do they bring to cells? Oxygen, right? So we get less oxygen being extracted in cells. And what do you need in order to prevent cancer? Oxygen, right? Got to have oxygen in all your tissues. Let's look at this right here. So in chlorophyll, okay, look at this right here. Chlorophyll and red blood cells, the structure of the cell is almost identical. Almost identical. And you can see right here, the difference is this. In chlorophyll, the binding mineral is magnesium. In red blood cells, it's iron. Right? And so, other than that, it's very similar. So it's very energy conserving for our body to take chlorophyll out of green plants and convert it right into good, healthy red blood cells. By the way, magnesium is absolutely critical to protect our blood-brain barrier. It's actually the barrier uh, molecule, the barrier mineral, that actually protects our blood-brain barrier. When we're deficient in magnesium, we are more susceptible to toxicity, particularly toxicity into our brain. Okay, so it causes a lot of problems. Some of the, the, the highest efficiencies in our society, highest ones I see, vitamin D, magnesium, and zinc. Okay, those are probably the three as far as when it comes to nutrient deficiencies. Those are the three top ones. So what was the first one? Vitamin D. What was the second one? Magnesium. What was the third one? Zinc. That's right. So we'll talk about how that works. <clears throat> okay, so chlorophyll. Um, and its derivatives are also very effective at binding carcinogenic substances. So these are some of the known carcinogens, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, okay? So I know it sounds heavy, but that's something that, like, for example, if we were to um, spend all day in traffic, right, just breathing in exhaust fumes, this is what we're taking in. So when we're living closer to a metropolitan area... <coughs> People who live closer to a metropolitan area, do you think that they're taking in less or more of these polycyclic? Yeah, more of them, exactly. So, obviously, we live near Atlanta, so there's not a whole lot we can do about that unless we obviously move into the country, but it just means that we need to minimize other toxins and maximize our body's ability to detox more effectively, right? Heterocyclic amines, that's generated when we... Uh, Grill, right? I know this is bad news this time of year, right? Everybody wants to go out with their grill, okay? But when we cook things at high temperatures, one of the byproducts is heterocyclic amines, and that becomes big-time problems in our body. You know what's always fascinating? What's always actually, um, it's actually kind of, kind of ironic is that we're always, our society is always looking for ways of raising money for different disorders, right? Raising money for breast cancer, for colon cancer, for prostate, for autism, for this, right? One of the best ways our society knows how to raise money? Bake sale. As bake sale? One of them, absolutely, bake sale. Or this time of year, fire up the barbecue, right? If I have a big barbecue, everybody will eat their, um, their pork, right, and their hot dogs and all kinds of stuff. Known carcinogens, but don't worry because the 10 bucks that you pay is going to go into cancer research so we can one day find the cure so you can eat all the junk that you want and um, we'll just be able to fry the cancer right out of your body, right? Just, find just that beef and beer up north. <laughs> That's right, exactly. And so aflatoxin, which is a common mold that we find in many different foods, and then other hydrophobic molecules, so other, um, basically, that's, that's a lot of other different things. 
um, different toxins that we find in like household cleaners, stuff like that. That's what this is referring to. Who's at toxicity workshops in, in March? A lot of you guys were there. We went into detail on, on all the different toxins, so that's a different talk. Uh, but what we know is that chlorophyll is amazing at actually binding to carcinogens. It actually helps bind to them and pull them right out of our system. And then just like I was saying, that magnesium core blocks a certain receptor that reduces excitotoxicity. So who's heard of MSG before, right? Monosodium glutamate. Is that something good you want in your body? Not good, right? By the way, you know, because it's so great for us, they also put that in vaccines as well. It's in there, right? But, you know, the, that was made, you know, that was uh, made by some PhDs, so it must be good. Um, what they, what MSG, the reason why people will get like Chinese headaches, right, Chinese syndrome headaches and stuff, or whatever they call it, right, um, those headaches when they go to Asian restaurants, um, or anytime they eat MSG, is because of this receptor, this glutamate receptor. And yet they're, they're predominant in your brain, okay, and they excite your brain. And, and there's a necessary balance there. When we provide a lot of free glutamate, which is what happens when we take in MSG, which is called monosodium glutamate, right? Um, when we do that, it overexcites that receptor, and the receptor end, ends up actually exploding because it's overexcited. Its internal metabolism can't handle the amount of stimulation, so it ends up exploding, and it, and it basically when it explodes, that's more glutamate receptors that are free now to uh, interact with other cells, more calcium that actually helps excite these cells, and all of a sudden it creates a massive amount of toxicity in our body. It's called excitotoxicity, where cells are actually excited to death, right? And a symptom of that is you might have a headache, right? You might have brain fog, things like that. Gluten can do the same thing. So gluten, who knows what gluten is, right? Protein in, in wheat, barley, rye, oats, right? A lot of these major things can cause similar reactions in our body, particularly those people who are susceptible, which is about 80% of our population, so very common. Magnesium, what it does, it, it helps protect that, right? So when we're, to, when we're sufficient in magnesium, we have more of a barrier, more of a protective mechanism from preventing any of those, those excitotoxic reactions. So very, very key there. So one of the big keys is a plant-based diet, right? Just like we talked about how key plants are, right, and green vegetables, so it makes sense, right? All of you guys probably could have told me this before you even came in here, that eating a lot of good vegetables, right, is actually good at preventing cancer. Anybody not know that? Is that new for anybody? Okay, most of you guys know it's kind of common sense. Paul was saying that he just, what, what, what were you telling me before uh, before we started? Fox, a couple weeks ago, was talking about how uh, breast cancer, they found that they could be cured by diet. Yeah, so what they said was that like a new finding, that diet plays a role in breast cancer, right? It's like we all kind of know this, common sense, right? But because it's not all over the media, right, like drug commercials, like uh, the food industry commercials, all this stuff, because it's not all over the media, we're not being bombarded with it on a regular basis, we take it for granted, don't we? Uh -huh. And we don't act with urgency about it, right? I've, uh, I've always heard, you know, a guy told me one time that uh, if we really knew how bad eating a donut was, right, or eating McDonald's or any of these kinds of things, there's no way we would do it, right? If we really knew what it did at a cellular level to our body, right? Like most people that are susceptible to gluten, we have mat when, when somebody is susceptible to gluten, eats a gluten-containing food, they have massive degeneration and damage and, and destruction of, of brain cells, right? If you knew that when you ate something that, you know, um, 
I don't know, 100 million brain cells were going to be destroyed right there and it was going to put you on a path to cancer, you probably think twice about doing that. But we don't. We don't act with that urgency because we're not being bombarded with it in our study. That's not to say that you can't ever, you know, eat, you can't ever take time and uh, have a vacation meal, right, or do something like that. It's not to say that. It's just that we have to have this understanding where we've got to act with a, a certain level of urgency when it comes to our health. Does everybody understand where I'm, where I'm coming from with that? doesn't mean we need to be Nazis about right, everything that goes on our plate or it's around us. Okay? It doesn't mean that. It just means that we need to have a high level of urgency about our health. And so antioxidants, one of the key things about these plant-based foods is the antioxidants that we, we take in. And guys, next week I'm going to really, next week is Cancer Solutions, so I'm actually going to go into a lot of detail. We're going to talk about some really cool and amazing stuff next week. I'm going to go into more detail about a lot of this stuff, so if you feel like, gosh, he's not giving me enough information on this, don't worry, that's coming up next week. Okay, Juice Plus is a great, great source, or greens, we saw the greens powders and the green um, capsules and stuff like that, great source of getting essential antioxidants that are plant-based that your body absorbs, excuse me, your body absorbs at a high level. Who here thinks that vitamin C that's that's synthetically derived, right, is the same as vitamin C that's in an orange? Anybody think that's the same thing? No. no. But most people will go out and they'll buy, right, Centrum Performance or some sort of synthetically derived vitamin or, or supplement. And it's definitely not the same thing. It's a different workshop for a different time, but ultimately those synthetic supplements actually cause more damage in your body than they are good. Right, so all those things—the Flintstones, all the uh, the synthetic vitamins that, that you get—right, get rid of those things. Switch to a whole food vitamin mineral supplement, which would be Juice Plus or Greens capsules, something along those lines. That's what you want. So let's look at what else we do. So remember, we're talking about the sun and how critical the sun. Sun is like the battery charger of the human body. Right, literally brings life and healing to the the entire earth including our body. And so the sun also interacts with the water, interacts with the algae. That's one of the reasons why they're green, right? Interacts because they can produce energy through the sun, and then small marine animals eat them, fish, and then we, we get the fish, right? Works its way up the food chain. So just like with animals when we're eating grass-fed meats, it's the same thing here. Ultimately, that energy is coming from one source. What is that? The sun, right. That's right. And so we're getting our omega-3s, and this is another key concept. And like I said, next week I'm going to go into a lot more detail nutritionally and things like that. Um, what we need is we need a good fish oil source because most people are deficient in high-quality omega-3s. Very, very common thing we see in our society. Very key that we're taking a good fish source. What I recommend is the Nordic Naturals that we sell here. You can also get this at Whole Foods. Um, it's the best brand that I've seen. Best value per dollar. And it's pharmaceutical grade, meaning that it's molecularly distilled, cleaned out, okay? No toxic debris that's in there. Phenomenal source. You also get high levels of vitamin D in there as well. You get some vitamin D, which we're going to talk about that. Not real high levels, I should say, but we get some of it in there. All right. So this is our colon right here. Who thinks that the colon and what's happening in the colon plays a big role in our body's ability to fight cancer? Who thinks? Now, most of you guys have your hand raised. It plays a huge role. Absolutely critical role. Okay, we're looking at obviously a sick disease colon right here. In fact, that's a cancer right there. And so most people, who thinks that most people in society are developing colon cancer right now as we speak? If you have your hand up, you're right. Most people are because they have very toxic colons. In fact, um, 
what's his name? Uh, it's slipping my mind right now. But uh, uh, John Wayne, right? So John Wayne, they said um, they actually looked into his bowel system, right? His bowel system after he died. They said he had 46 pounds of excrement jammed into the walls, all kinds of stuff in his body, right? And so we've got to make sure we're sweeping out our colon. I'm at week three, because this is a three-part series, as you guys know now, three-part series on, on cancer prevention. Week three, I'm going to give you my exact regimen for what I would do if I had cancer and what I pretty much do right now to make sure that that never happens to me. Part of that has a lot to do with making sure that our colon is really moving effectively and what we need to do to clean that up. One of those things is probiotics. Okay, We talked about all the bacteria in our system. Probiotics, absolutely essential. This is a key supplement. I'm not a big believer in recommending tons and tons of supplements, but probiotics, the more I've read, the more I've understood, the more I've experienced personally and professionally, the more I've seen incredible results with probiotics. Okay, And what I recommend is that we're taking something with high doses of probiotics, 50 to 100 billion daily. So how many daily? 50 to 100 billion, okay? Who here, a lot of people will say this to me. It's a common question I get. They say, well, I eat yogurt, okay? Right? The thing about yogurt is, in a typical serving of yogurt, you have about 250 million colony-forming units, right? 250 million. Now, how much should I say we're looking for? 50 to 100 billion. Is there a big difference there? Yeah, there's a big difference, right? And so that good bacteria is key. Now, in the, in the old days, right, so years and years ago, I mean, God didn't design us. He didn't have um, probiotic supplements in the Garden of Eden, did he, right? But back in the, you know, back years and years ago, people would go in their yard and they would pick food right out of their yard, and it would have good bacteria because the land was healthy and fertile. Right? It would have good bacteria, good enzymes, all kinds of stuff like that. They, they didn't sterilize it, right? They didn't, like, clean it. They might have taken some of the dirt off. They didn't over-sterilize it, and they would eat that, and there was just a ton of assortment of good bacteria. Plus, they would ferment and culture different foods. This is a common thing. They would make sauerkrauts and, 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 and massively fermented uh, yogurts and things like that. Um, and so they were naturally getting tons and tons of good bacteria. In our society, we really don't do that too often, do we? No. So first off, we're really not doing that. Second thing is this. Is that who's ever, you know, there's chlorine and everything. Who's ever swam in a chlorine pool, chlorine-based pool? Most of us, right? Who's ever drank water out of a tap, tap water, right? Or out of a water fountain? We all have. And so because of that, that chlorine actually that's in there, why do they put chlorine in water? Kill germs. Kill the bacteria, kill germs, exactly. So when we drink it into our body, when we take it into our body, whether it's through our skin, right, in a shower, okay, or we're drinking it or we're swimming in it, what do you think it does to the bacteria in our body? Yeah, it kills it. Exactly. And so it's, it's really almost impossible to avoid altogether. Okay, because even when you go and you buy juice at a store, you go to a restaurant, you get water. Okay, which um, those of you guys who are on sweet tomatoes, we didn't order water, did we? No, we just ate a good plant-based diet, right, when we were out there. So we got lots of vegetables, so we had all the water that we needed. Okay, but if you do that, you know you're getting chlorine in intake into your body. Okay, when I travel, I mean, that's nothing I can do really do about it. I know it's going to happen. So that's one of the reasons, not to mention all the other environmental toxins that we're taking in. It's one of the reasons why a good probiotic supplement is very, very powerful for you. Who takes a probiotic supplement right now? Okay. So those of you guys that take it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you notice a, ch a difference, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that I really, really noticed a change in my overall energy levels, my digestion, my immune system, all of those things, taking probiotics. So this is kind of how it works. So 
probiotics. These guys get in there. They're kind of like scrubbing. This, by the way, this is our villi, okay? So small little pockets in our intestine. Okay, so small little pockets. That's where food actually drops in. And these, the bloodstream right here is able to easily pick up the nutrients that break down. So when our body breaks down nutrients, the bacteria breaks it down into very, very, very small bits. And then it passes through this cellular layer into the bloodstream. If we didn't have the bacteria, we couldn't even, we couldn't even digest anything, we couldn't absorb anything. The fact that we do have the bacteria allows us to, to digest it, but ultimately, we want to have a clean, healthy villi, okay? Problem with gluten is this, is that gluten actually blocks this. It actually wedges right in there and blocks it. So we get less nutrient absorption, our immune system starts to attack it, causing inflammation, opens up, and that actually destroys the villi, opens up these areas, right? the little pockets, and now we have a leaky gut. We've heard a leaky gut before, right? So in our body, our immune system starts attacking the gut because it's actually trying to do the right thing for us by getting rid of the gluten and other aspects, but it causes more problems in the long run. When we have good bacteria, the good bacteria actually clean off the villi, actually clean that off, get rid of toxic debris, and help us absorb nutrients more effectively. So very, very key. <clears throat> Enzymes are another key thing. So you want to have good enzymes. <clears throat> so this is where like that raw diet, that raw plant-based diet comes in because raw foods naturally contain more enzymes. Same thing with culture foods. Okay. Now with somebody with cancer, enzymes are another key supplement. Now it's not an essential supplement that I recommend for everybody. Okay. Naturally what we want to do is just eat about a 75% raw diet, right? 25% acidic cooked you can you can handle fine 75 percent raw but if you are if you have cancer in your body i would recommend actually 90 10 right and then especially anytime that you're eating cooked food enzymes digestive enzymes because the digestive enzymes allow your body to break down nutrients using less energy okay and there are three systems in our body that are always competing with energy. How many systems? Three. three. You have your digestive system, your immune system, and your kinetic system that move that, that allows your body to move. So three systems. What was the first one? Digestive. Digestive. Second one? Immune. What was the third one? Kinetic. Kinetic. That's right. Three systems that are always competing for energy. And so the key with this is that, is that when we are digesting food, right, so ultimately, people that, that have cancer, they're deficient. They have a weaker immune response, that their body is not able to heal effectively. So we want more energy to be shunted into healing. So we want less energy to be used for digestion. When we take enzymes, that allows our body to break down and absorb nutrients more effectively without using less energy. So it's kind of like this. It's almost like this. It's kind of like, um, let's say... Um, you know, what was your first name? Tony. Tony, Tony, let's say, Tony, I gave you um, $100, right? And you were going to invest it and get 5%. He's like, where? Give it to me. 5% at the end of the year, right? So you'd gain $5 at the end of the year. Okay, not bad, right? But let's say that he were to invest that and he was to get like a, uh, let's say a 20% improvement, right? So it's the same thing. So for the same amount of energy or for even less energy, okay, um, the body's able to produce the same amount of energy. So using less, gaining more, which is going to be key there, a key principle, allowing our enzymes to, to work. So anti-cancer diet really looks like this right here. 
So we don't want too many calories. Why don't we want too many calories? Your body works too hard. That's right. So Priscilla said your body works too hard. A lot of you guys caught on to that concept. So then we're using too much energy in our digestive system. We don't want that. We want just enough energy, right? Just enough nutrients to supply our needs without overdoing it. So lower calorie diet would actually be better. 10 or more servings of vegetables a day. What's one of the good things in vegetables? Chlorophyll, right? Absolutely. What does chlorophyll do? One thing that it does? More red blood cells, right? More oxygen into our system. Helps detox us more effectively. What's another good reason why we want a lot of vegetables? Enzymes. Enzymes. Absolutely. Fiber. Excellent. Tony, Satish, great answers. What? Antioxidants. That's right. Antioxidants destroy free radicals. We're going to talk about more about those um, next week. Four servings of low glycemic high fiber fruits. Right? We want it low glycemic because high sugar, we're going to talk more about this, but sugar feeds cancer cells. So what feeds cancer cells? Sugar. sugar. So if you want to get cancer quickly, what do you eat? Lots and lots and lots of sugar. So even when we're eating fruit, we want it to be low glycemic. What's an example of a low glycemic fruit? Blueberries. Blueberries, berries. Right? What's another one? Green apples. Green apple, right? What's another one? Who knows this one? Grapefruit. Grapefruit's a lower, lower uh, glycemic. Lemons and limes, right? Those are good ones. Um, avocado. Yep. Avocado, believe it or not, is a fruit, right? It's a good one. Balanced omega-6 to 3 ratio. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, very rich in antioxidants, beneficial probiotics, enzymes. We want to drink at least our body weight in ounces, okay? So at least our body weight now, so lots and lots and lots of water because that's what actually helps take bad stuff out of our body, right? So lots of water and daily detox cycles. And, and again, we're going to talk more about how exactly we're going to do that. Exercise. Okay, who here exercises? Okay, good. Who here exercised today? All right, good, awesome. And so exercise, really key part of this, okay? When we exercise, we increase our blood flow, so more oxygen. Lymph flow clears toxins. So remember how we talked about those, those the lymphatic drain areas, right? When they're just sitting there, what actually moves the lymphatic drain areas is skeletal muscle pump, right? And so it actually has to pump that, that circulation and, that, and all of that fluid back up into our venous system, back up into our blood system. So very, very key that we're exercising for that and that we're staying active during the day. Increased respiration, sweating, and sweating moves toxins out of our system. Increases lean body tissue, increases our T-cell, right? So exercise is powerful at stimulating our immune system. But not too much exercise, right? Not too much. What type of exercise do I recommend? What's the name for it? Interval. Interval training or burst training, right? It's sort of burst training. So high intensity, short time period exercise, right? So my workout this morning, 17 minutes, okay? 17 minutes in and out, right? Just incredible shape, right? That's how we want to do it. So high intensity, short time period, but then also you want to make sure that you're active during the day, right? So you're walking around, kind of just keeping your body moving during the day. And then finally, sunshine. And this is probably, vitamin D, guys, is probably the most well-researched aspect of fighting cancer that's really ever been found, okay? And it's, it's, a, it's a shame that this is not first-line treatment, Okay? It's absolutely a shame, but really ultimately there's not much money in it. This is the most research, way more research than any chemotherapy drug, right? Than any surgery, obviously, right? There's not a whole lot of research on the surgeries, than any radiation therapy, any of that stuff, and for prevention is is vitamin D, right? And so very, very key 
This is where our levels need to be. Who's ever had their vitamin D levels checked? Some of you guys have, okay? This is where we need to be right here. Deficient is under 50 nanograms per milliliter. And that's key that you understand that because when you're looking at the typical blood lab, the typical labs, it'll say 32, right? Some of you guys know it says, it says under 32, then they'll say, oh, you're deficient in vitamin D. But what we know today, the new research has said, if you're under 50, you're, you're, you're deficient. In fact, in my opinion, as more research has come out, I tell people everybody should be in this range right here, 65 to 90. Everybody should be in that range. Okay, very simple test you can get, like 60 bucks or whatever. You can actually have it sent to your house. You prick your skin, right, and you send it out. You can get this, this test done if you want to. Um, but if you don't want to, you'll never overdose by getting out in the sunshine, right? Now, you do, you do have to watch out. Obviously, everybody knows you don't want to get burnt, right? Sunburns are not healthy, but we do want to kind of create a little bit of an effect, like a, a slight pinking, pinkening right of our skin or some sort of a slight effect. That tells us our body is going to adapt. Part of that process is producing more vitamin D. Vitamin D is necessary for over 2,000 genes in your body. So how many genes? 2,000. Remember we talked about the human genome? 20,000 genes in our body? So about 10% of the genes in our body, right? Unbelievable. Huge influence on our immune system, on brain function, on all of these things. Whoever, who feels better when they're out in the sun? Right? Don't you feel so much better? Oh, yeah. It feels like phenomenally better. So yesterday in the morning before I went to church, I... Uh, I did Looks like that's all we've got for this podcast. Join us next time for part two of Dr. David Jocker's Cancer Seminar, recorded live at Exodus Health Center in Kennesaw, Georgia. As always, you can visit us online at www.exodushc.com. See you next time.